Welcome to the CRISPR revolution. This is CRISPR Cuts, a podcast dedicated to the world of genome engineering. Take a break and join us as we guide conversations with an expert CRISPR cast about this cutting edge science. Hi all, welcome to CRISPR Cuts. Today we have two very interesting guests, Omar Abudaye and Jonathan Gutenberg from the McEwan Institute for Brain Research at MIT. These two are famous for the Sherlock Diagnostic Kit. Now, before we go on to talk about Sherlock, let's welcome Jonathan and Omar. Welcome to CRISPR Cuts, Omar and Jonathan. Before we go on to talk about Sherlock, could you tell us a little bit about your educational background, both of you? Yeah, so this is Omar. I, I guess I did my undergrad at MIT a while ago in mechanical engineering and biological engineering. Went in very interested in doing sort of biomedical devices, biotechnology, and that led me to doing an MD PhD program at Harvard, where I did the first years in medical school and then just completed my PhD about a year ago from MIT. And I've now put, I guess, my medical training on hold to start a lab with Jonathan at MIT to continue tackling questions around gene therapy and gene editing and technology development. And I also did my undergrad at MIT. That's actually how Omar and I met. I was biological engineering and math. And then I went to Harvard for my PhD in systems biology. And I graduated, I guess, I defended about eight months ago now. And since we've been running this new lab where we're kind of trying to explore new questions and how do we mine biological diversity to make new tools? Actually, that's very interesting. So both of you uh, met in undergrad and then that's when you kind of realized you like working on similar things. And so was it planned to kind of work together later or did that just happen? I mean, in Fung's lab, it kind of it just, we didn't plan to both join Fung's lab, but we had worked together on it was a senior design project. That was actually kind of a, a fun, crazy idea about using engineering vector, like probiotics for some you know inflammatory disease. It was just a fun opportunity to work together and actually continue kind of doing some research together after that on new microscopy modalities. But I think it was pretty fortuitous that we both ended up in Fung's lab. Okay, I see. That's great. The type of work that you've done is very interesting. And one of the main things, obviously, in your project was the discovery of Cas13, so which was obviously fundamental to the development of Sherlock. So can you talk a little bit about that, about how you came about to find this enzyme and how that led to kind of where you are now? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Sherlock is our sort of highly sensitive and specific CRISPR diagnostics platform. And really exciting that CRISPR can be used for sensing nucleic acids with implications for disease detection. But, you know, we definitely didn't go into graduate school interested in diagnostics. You know, I was much more excited about molecular tool development, for sort of gene therapy and treating disease. And, and as part of that, you know, I was really, both of us are really interested in exploring sort of the diversity of CRISPR enzymes. So everyone was really excited about Cas9, you know, six years ago. And we had this question of like what other enzymes in the CRISPR world existed and are there ones that might have unique features that could be useful for things we couldn't even think about yet. And so we did a lot of bioinformatics to find new CRISPR systems. We characterized a lot of them biochemically and in bacteria. One of the really interesting ones was this Cas13 enzyme. And what was unique about it is it targeted RNA instead of DNA. And that was fairly unique because all the enzymes that were really known at the time, the useless tools were, were DNA targeting. 
And being able to go after RNA really allows you to do so much. You can modulate, you know, genes. You can edit residues on genes temporally. So it's kind of like a temporary gene modification. And we later realized you could actually do diagnostics as well because this enzyme, when it bound to its target, it not only would cleave its target, but it would also cleave other molecules in solution. And that property is kind of like saying like, hey, I just found my target and I'm just going to cleave everything and tell everyone that I found this target kind of in sort of a more abstract uh, way of thinking about it. And so what we could do is put in these fluorescent reporters and when they would cleave, they'd become fluorescent. And so this Cas13 would basically release fluorescence when it found the nucleic acid target. And we were able to make this test, you know, sensitive to a single molecule. It was very quick, very cheap. And so we kind of, you know, went down this path very fortuitously from just, you know, asking these questions about CRISPR biology, not really knowing what we would find. And we took that path to many different areas, including CRISPR diagnostics and, and more. So, Right. And I remember reading about Sherlock the first time and then I think like a year later, there was an upgraded version, which was even more sensitive. So that's really great. And what struck me most was that the readout is so simple. So once you have a very sensitive method, is it right that you can actually just use strips and in your sample and you can actually see a readout on the strip? Yeah, that's correct. One of the great things about this CRISPR diagnostic platform is that by changing the piece of RNA or DNA that's cleaved by this activity that Omar talked about, we can change it from a readout like fluorescence to something that could be read out by a paper strip, or there have been people who have done it so it actually changes the optical properties of a fluid or even potentially electronic readouts. So yeah, this kind of you know lateral flow paper-based diagnostic is really powerful because modularity of the platform allows you to swap the readouts depending on the application. And it's just really fun to kind of think about different ways to develop things. That's the cool thing about being in lab and having these enzymes. I mean, it's really thrilling first to discover them. I, I remember when we first characterized Cas12, you know, back then it's called CBF1, it's like you know, people thought there was only Cas9, and now there's this entirely new thing. So there's that discovery aspect. But even beyond that, once we have the technologies, you can kind of let your imagination run wild. So we can say, what can we detect? You know, can we detect cancer? Can we detect different patient mutations, viral DNA, bacterial DNA? Or can we detect even using different color metric or other readouts? And the thing you don't see, of course, is that there's so many things that we tried that failed. But you just have to keep trying and letting your you know, imagination play with it. And yeah, it can make really interesting stuff like this lateral flow readout. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point, especially about the part of failing, because in the end, you always see these amazing science nature papers, and it's hard to imagine the hard work which has gone into it and all the trial and errors behind it. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Just keeping at it is probably the best way to go about it. Maybe speak a little bit about the implications of detecting RNA. So one thing is obviously... A lot of viruses have RNA genomes, and where else would it be useful to detect RNA instead of DNA? So just to clarify, we can actually do both RNA and DNA detection. So one of the important steps of this detection reaction is we do a preamplification before the Cas13 detection. So if you were just doing Cas13 detection, it would you know, get in the low, maybe picomolar, high femtomolar range of sensitivity which is, you know, millions of molecules per microliter. 
But if we combine in the reaction a set of enzymes that can actually amplify the nucleic acids in solution a little bit, it can bring up like a single molecule or 10 molecules to a level where Cas13 can then detect it. So what we essentially do is we can turn RNA or DNA into a lot of DNA through an amplification. And in that amplification, we add a T7 promoter so that we can take that amplified DNA and make it into RNA. And then that RNA is detected by Cas13. So all of that works in one reaction, and it's very quick and very simple at one temperature. But what it allows us to do is detect DNA and RNA. But to answer your question where RNA detection is also useful, I mean, yeah, there are a lot of RNA viruses. You know, bacteria have RNA signatures, you know, 16S rRNA sequences, or even transcripts of, like, antibiotic resistance genes. Cancers are also really interesting at the RNA level, right, because a lot of transcripts are fused. Like, genes become fused together, and you can detect those in the RNA. In general, RNA signatures are better than DNA signatures because they're going to be at a higher copy number. So it's actually easier to detect them per cell or whatever you're doing. Great. Thanks for clarifying that. Now that you have this great technology, you have started a new company, right? Yeah, that's correct. (laughs) So that's Sherlock Biosciences. Yeah. Can you tell a little bit about what your roles are going to be in this company and how you balance working in a lab and having a company of your own? It's just a very interesting position to be in. You know, for us, it's you know a lot of fun to do the early academic development of these technologies and you publish really fantastic papers and get to talk about them at conferences. But I think there's always that missing piece where you want to be able to, you know, be like, well, what's next? How do we take this work and really make an impact for you know, society and people and patients? And so it's hard to do it in academia because of the capital that's needed to really scale and translate technology into a product. And so I think, you know, getting to spin this off as a company has been a really rewarding experience where we get to interact with different types of, you know, people who are thinking about, you know, the business of how do you actually get the capital to make a product that can, you know, I guess, make the company sustainable. You know, we work with people who think about actually, you know, how do you make a test that's reliable and can like be accurate across you know, hundreds of patients? You know, it's, it's one thing to have a proof of concept in a lab, but then, you know, when you're deploying something that can actually inform how doctors make decisions about people's care and actually affect lives, you have to be sure that these tests are super reliable and that they'll give you the right answer every time. And so it's not easy work, but I think, you know, we, we've assembled a really good team and have, you know, there's nine co-founders, including Fong and Jim Collins, who originally helped us develop the technology when we were in their labs. And we brought on some other really awesome expertise, like David Walt, who's co-founder of Illumina, and has really been helping craft sort of the vision business side of the diagnostics company. And I think we have a fantastic CEO, Rahul Danda, who uh, has like 20 years of diagnostics experience. So I think we you know, have a really good team around this that uh, hopefully can bring this to patients soon. Yeah, I hope so too. Good luck with that. And if you had to estimate, when do you think these diagnostic kits would be available in the market? And secondly, would they be available for just anyone to buy or are you specifically going to be sending them to doctors only? Yeah, so I think it's a great question. I think the future vision will be kind of easy accessibility because one of the really powerful aspects of the technology is that we can do testing probably wherever. But of course, there's many different iterations of a technology, and each of those has to go through different aspects of regulatory approval. So I think that we'll probably initially focus on not actually giving them directed patients 
And as for the timeline, it's always hard to predict, but we're moving quickly, I think, to getting something rapidly out. And a nice thing is that because the technology is so easy to design and test, we're hoping that we'll have product quite soon. And another thing, of course, is that the technology is not only being adopted by the company, but there's many different applications across both human health and agricultural applications and even interesting environmental applications. We have collaborators who are interested in using it to track different populations ecologically, fish migrating on the West Coast or looking at different types of beetles, for example. So I think it's really exciting to see how a foundational technology like this RNA detection can really be adopted by so many people to make difference in so many areas. Right. That's really great. I do hope that we get to see a lot of these applications uh, soon. And another thing that maybe I wanted to ask you about was that after Sherlock, now you're also working at the McGovern Research Institute. Both of you have your own labs. So could you tell us a little bit about other projects that you guys are working on or are interested in? Yeah. I think both of us are pretty interested in sort of furthering gene editing and gene delivery technologies. So I think gene editing still has uh, limitations in that it doesn't, it's not efficient in all cell types, especially like brain cells. And it also, you know, current gene editing tools still can't insert DNA well either. And so I think, you know, a lot of our work is looking at technologies that go beyond CRISPR that can um, manipulate DNA more efficiently in more tissues so that more diseases can actually be targeted. And beyond that, we're also interested in a second problem with gene therapy, which is that even if you had the perfect genome editor, it would still be hard to deliver these tools to the right tissue and right cells and have them specifically go in sort of efficiently. And so we're currently trying to explore sort of new types of viruses and other types of modalities that can better sort of get nucleic acid into cells for that purpose. And so those are sort of our main two technology development approaches. And then beyond that, we're also interested in using these tools to sort of probe aging biology and sort of understand why cells become dysfunctional, why they become senescent. And if we can sort of understand that better, can we use our tools to actually reverse senescence and actually regenerate tissues across, you know, multiple sort of aging associated diseases. Great. That sounds really interesting. And I recently in the last one or two years, especially there have been so many CRISPR related companies and CRISPR research is accelerating. So one of the things I was curious about was that CRISPR itself is fairly new. It's less than a decade old. So how do you think the next five years are going to change this field? Where do you see this field in, say, five years? Well, I mean, of course, as the technology becomes more and more widely available, the applications will be more and more impressive. So I think one great thing about having all of these different methods out there is that it really creates a really versatile toolbox for people to use in biology. So it'll be quite amazing to see. But I think that it's always great to bet on biodiversity being more and more rising. So I think we'll continue to find new enzymes and new techniques, and those will probably allow us to do things that we, that we haven't done before, like you know, very more efficient integration, as Omar mentioned, into non-dividing cells and other aspects. And lastly, I think that as people become more familiar with the techniques, the efficiency will certainly go up as these new techniques are kind of coming through they always involve aspect of debugging. If you look at the original Cas9 genome engineering paper, I mean, the editing efficiencies are actually 
quite low to what you might expect today. Back then, they were incredibly, uh, you know, transformative. But you can just see how a technology, once it has its initial debut, gets to mature and become better and better. So we'll see that maturation of these technologies, and people will have higher and higher efficiencies with editing and be able to do them in more complex models as well. So it's really an exciting time, and I think that there's much, much more left to be discovered. Right, it is absolutely an exciting time, and you mentioned people getting more used to the technology in the scientific community. Sure, they'll make even more developments on the public side. I don't know if you have had the chance to talk about your technology with the general public or say non-scientists, but if you have, can you tell us a little bit about how people are perceiving this technology, and do you think that will improve with time, or are they already excited about this? You mean just like sort of CRISPR and gene editing in general? Yeah, or? CRISPR and gene editing in general. So it's a general question, just in case you have had any interactions where you have basically either explained your project to the public or from what you see around you, if how people are reacting to CRISPR in general. Yeah, I mean, I think we've given some talks to sort of general audiences before, and I think most people leave pretty inspired and excited about the technology. And it's probably because more we frame our sort of interests from like, you know, treating disease perspective. And I think, right, CRISPR has so much potential to treat disease and actually cure people of diseases that are really nasty. And it also, you know, goes even beyond healthcare. Like, you know, for agriculture, it can make, you know, farming much easier, have better yields, and actually sort of improve the world from that standpoint. And so I think, you know, generally people, when they hear those applications, feel pretty good. I think more recently, there have been a lot of questions with the CRISPR babies in China about, you know, what's going on with that? Why are people, you know, upset about it? Or what does it mean? And so I think we find ourselves explaining that type of sort of situation, you know, what the difference of between germline editing is and like, you know, treating diseases. And so, you know, a component of it is a lot of people, I don't think, appreciate necessarily the difference between, you know, if you treat someone's disease, you're not actually propagating genetic information that will go, you know, to someone's, you know, kids. And so I think, you know, part of this is just explaining, you know, what all these CRISPR companies are doing actually can make a really big difference. It's not going to do anything that's ethically dubious. So I think overall, I mean, in our sort of experience, people seem pretty optimistic, but there's definitely explaining we have to do. <laughs> right. Great. Okay, so we always end on a fun question. So coming up with one for you guys was easy because you have such an interesting name of your company and your kit. Between the two of you, who's Sherlock and who's Watson? <laughs> I mean, I think the better question is who's Moriarty. Um, <laughs> the important thing about having a good working relationship is that we both have to have flexibility with our roles. So it depends on the day, of course, but in general, I think that, I don't know, it's probably half-half. Half-half. Yeah. So sometimes you're both all the time, depending on the day. I guess I have more of the medical background, so maybe I'm closer to Watson in that regard. But yeah, <laughs> I have more of a problem with uh, opiates or whatever. <laughs> no, it's, yeah. I think the more important thing is what's the next acronym that we can think up, because that was certainly the hardest part of Sherlock, was figuring that out. And there were a lot of different iterations I went through. We had Columbus, we had Candy. Um, so yeah I think it's really important to have fun with the day-to-day -day, and that's what makes it a great experience yeah absolutely and 
it is absolutely important to come up with great abbreviations. I think you guys have done great and you've set the bar high. So every new CRISPR tool now has to kind of step up to that level and come up with more abbreviations. So yeah, we're looking forward to what your next one will be. And uh, <laughs> great. Thank you so much, guys. This has been a really fun and informative episode. Thanks for listening to CRISPR Cuts. I invite you to check out the Synthigo blog, The Bench, for more great CRISPR content. Please send us any feedback you have by contacting us on Twitter. And if you want to join in as a guest on our podcast, email us at crispercuts at synthigo.com. CRISPR Cuts is a scientific podcast by Synthigo. Produced by Kevin, Minu, and me, Bobby. Additional production by Resonate Recordings. Our cover art is by Jeff Merrick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.